All of these moments though were yes moments. I always tell people when you're approaching like a decision, many times there's lots of reasons to say no to something. I very rarely say no to an opportunity that ties into my goals. Like very rarely, like I'll at least try it. What's the worst thing that'll happen? Welcome to the Search and Succeed podcast. I'm Rob Glass, managing partner of Hunston Partners. We are so fortunate to share many journeys with some exceptional people throughout their careers, people whom are thriving in their area of expertise. And on this podcast, we'll be chatting with them about how they perceive and strive for success within their industry and their life. I hope you enjoy. Today, we welcome Noelle Silver-Russell to the podcast. Noelle is a multi-award winning technologist with an entrepreneurial spirit who specializes in helping companies with emerging technology, cloud, AI, and Web 3.0. Currently at Accenture, Noelle is leading the global AI solutions team, empowering companies with inclusive innovation using conversational AI. Noelle has led teams at NPR, Microsoft, IBM, AWS, and is a consistent champion for data and AI literacy. She's built many conversational AI applications and has over 2 million users on Amazon Alexa. In the last year, she was awarded the Microsoft MVP Award for AI and VentureBeats Women in AI Responsibility and Ethics Award. I'm blown away by Noelle's energy combined with her knowledge and passion for many of her subject matters, of which she is an expert. One of which is being a proud mum of six, all whilst having built and continuing to thrive as an executive. We're really excited to discuss how Noelle finds her own version of success in her life. Fantastic to be here with you, Noelle. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. It's so good to have you on the podcast. It really is. Uh, as I said in my piece beforehand, the times that we've spoken, you and I, I don't want to make you cringe or embarrass you, but you bring an energy and uh, you make me smile when we talk. And I'm smiling right now. Anyone that's just listening to this uh, can, can't see us, but I, you know, you really do bring an energy and a, and a passion for what you talk about. So it's so good to have you here. Yes, it'll be really exciting. And hopefully uh, one of these days I'll see some of your listeners live somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe we'll make this one live, actually. We yeah, are. who knows? That'd be awesome. I think we should do. There's so much that we're going to get into the bones of about you and about what you love to do and your subject matter expertise and, you know, your your life and your career are so intertwined. And I think they're astonishing, if I'm being honest. Uh, I think what you what you do and what you've done is is quite amazing. And we'll certainly ask you about that in a minute. I do like to start off also always by talking about this search and succeed phrase that we that we're so passionate about. And I've mentioned it to you now on a few occasions. The podcast is obviously called that. But when you hear the phrase itself, not related to the podcast at all, but what do you think when you hear the phrase? I was thinking about this and I actually thought maybe I don't know if I think about it differently, but my world, of course, is all around 
surge. <laughs> um, and, and I have a philosophy of kind of learning by doing. And one of the things I do every single morning um, is I leverage different tools, different resources um, in order to figure out like, what should I focus on? And when I was looking at like this term search and succeed, I was like, you know, that's exactly what I do. I use, of course, artificial intelligence to support my searching, <laughs> but I'm asking now these reasoning engines, chat GPT, right? All these cool tools to actually find things for me to make me more successful. And then part of why I, I do what I do or why I'm good at what I do is that I immediately then share that with my audience and my community and now with your community. So I think that is really what I realized part or maybe most of my success comes from my ability to find information, <laughs> aggregate it actually learn it. So I think that's part of the difference is I like to put my fingers on a keyboard and actually be really practical with the things that I learn. And I don't just mean in code. I mean, like if I learn a new productivity hack, I actually will implement it. I don't just kind of say, hey, there's this cool thing you could do. I try to do it first. And I think it's a pretty good leadership principle as well, right? Like how do we actually walk the talk um, as they say? Um, so yeah, so search and succeed, it actually is quite resonating with the way that I live my life. I use tools to find information that's helpful to me. And then I, I share it with people. And at the end of the day, that makes me feel the most successful. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I can kind of resonate. Not, not, let's not talk work for a second, but you know, just sometimes when you scroll through social media, for example, and you see something that some content about how to, <laughs> It sounds ridiculous. How to cut <laughs> fruit better and how to make your fruit. And you're like, okay, I'll use that now. And then, you know, I'll I'll actually use that content and 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 take it to take it to its fruition, no pun intended. But yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, all sorts of things. I've done like time timers, uh, planners. I mean, I'm not a big, I'm a huge, I'll say, planner or moleskin journal person. Like I could, I should have bought stock in the company if they're public. I don't know if they okay. are, but so many of these things, but mostly because I'll, I follow, you know, people who will show me tips on how to do better bullet journaling or how to manage my time in a notebook that I, and I'm, I'm a good old paper and pen person. So I find these things and it's super exciting because I'm kind of, I always say building on the shoulder of giants, right? Like I get to learn from other people. And then if it works for me, I can share it with other people who would never even have looked at that content or seen that idea um so i kind of feel like it's this beautiful virtuous cycle that i get to be a part of that's brilliant i love the fact that you are so entrenched in technology but yet you're a paper and pen person um yeah with, yeah the the two things, right brain and left brain come yeah. together <laughs> just so beautifully intertwined still i think there's lots of things that we should appreciate from the past that were you know that are still part of who we are today, even though we live in this world of you know, technology and artificial intelligence, which is just so advanced and some people are still so just getting their head around. Yes. But let's just stay on, on, on you for a second as far as the work and the life balance that you find for yourself. Uh, I mentioned that you're a mother of six and you know, that in itself is no mean feat. You know, yeah. I'm a dad of three and you, know, you doubled that and I, I find that... <laughs> So, but to be to have the career that you've had and are having, should I say, in the journey that you're on, how do you find that equilibrium? How do you then find your own version of success whilst encompassing all of this? Yeah, I actually <clears throat> have found probably the 
biggest turn uh, for me was maybe in middle of my career where I realized how important it was to kind of have something that I cared about uh, that drove my decision. So in my case, you know, what my very firstborn son, who's now 18, which is crazy, but my firstborn son, when he was born, he was born with Down syndrome and it kind of changed everything that I wanted to do. So this is now almost 20 years ago. I was already a technologist, but it shifted my lens to what companies am I going to work for, right? That are going to help me help him. And my life, of course, I now have lots of kids, a gaggle of humans that I get to support. But one of the things I am super grateful for having him first is because all of my kids now get the benefit, right? Of all the things that I'm trying to do to help his life. I feel like every child should be treated with an individualized plan and every child should have, you know, very special, dedicated educational resources, And now, of course, we're seeing artificial intelligence kind of come and do that. But that was one of the reasons I joined the Amazon Alexa team, right? It was because I saw this opportunity to open up a world to someone who couldn't necessarily use a phone or a a keyboard or a laptop as easily as everyone else. And mind you, maybe he could have, maybe I could have worked with him, but it was so much easier for him to just ask for what he wanted. And so voice technology, conversational technology now in the world of generative AI and just being able to say what you want to a model and it seemingly magically do what you're asking it to do. I think it just increases accessibility. But that was my my kind of my trick, I guess, was that I realized I really wanted to support my son becoming independent in this world. And I laser focused on how do I support that accessibility of technology, right? Because um, as people, even as people get older, right? My my son, of course, is 18, but I have a dad. My dad who lives with me, he has a traumatic brain injury. And when that happened, he instantly could no longer use technology in the way that he had before. He could only use his voice for, for a long time. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm starting to see a pattern here of things that I care about. And so you'll I always tell people like, wear your heart on your sleeve. Companies, when they hire me, they know exactly what they're going to get. Because I say, here's what I care about. Here's why I'm doing this work. Here's why I want to work with you or for you. Um, And that transparency, I think, is also a key part of of why my journey in technology has been so exciting and and successful. That's that's unbelievable. Uh, You know, I don't overstate that word. And I think that one of the questions that we always like to ask is what what motivates you and what to you is success? It seems quite clear that what motivates you every day when you get out of bed, which we've learned is at four in the morning, um, (laughs) is its own right. But is every day your six kids and your father and your husband and your family, but incorporating what you do and creating and being part of inventing a new phase of technology, which we'll come on to, you know, around Alexa and what you did at Amazon. How I got that right? I mean, is that is that is that what drives you and motivates you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's it's interesting because I there's probably an early part of my career where I did not know that I could, you know, people used to always say, like, do what you love, you know, find a path. And when I heard that, I used to think like, well, I love doing yoga. Does that mean I become a yoga instructor? Like I love but there's actually, you know, this concept of Aikigai, right? Where you have these Venn diagrams of, you know, not only what do you, what are you good at? There's certain things I'm good at, like explaining things to people, teaching. I'm really good at that. But then also, you know, what do I love to do? Well, it turns out I actually do love speaking and talking to people and explaining ideas and, and turning on light bulbs. 
But then what does the world actually need for me right now? And it actually needs me to teach the things that the world needs to learn. And that I think was the critical changing point, right? Was I couldn't, I could have definitely become an amazing yoga instructor. And maybe I will again one day <laughs> do right. that. Right. But the world really needs and will pay me well to actually do the thing that I'm good at, that I love to do, that ties with something that honestly, I feel like anyone could have gone and done what I did. Like I wasn't classically trained as a machine learning engineer or data scientist. I learned by doing, I learned by persistence and passion. And I, I always tell people like, there are days where I cry over my dishes as a mom of six, taking care of my dad, trying to be an executive in a big tech company. Like sometimes it is too much. Yeah. Um, but I, but having this drive of like, what's, what, why am I doing this always brings me back to that four o'clock in the morning where I get up and I'm like, today is the day <laughs> we're doing this. Um, and I get up excited every day. Uh, I mean, there's not many times where, like I always say joy comes in the morning, right? I think it's a biblical reference. Mm -hmm. um, but, but it's so true. If you, you know, if you mold, I think your, your personality, like I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up thinking this, like I trained my mind and there's a bit of mental discipline, I think that comes with this. And we'll talk about this later, but there are practices that I do that are very hard intentionally. And I try to tell people that I mentor, I'm always telling them like, sure. do hard things on purpose so that when hard things happen, they seem easy, like intentionally hard things. So like, you know, I love hot yoga, Bikram yoga. It's terribly hard. People I take there are like, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. 90 minutes in, you know, 40 degrees Celsius, 40% humidity. Like it's horrible. It's a horrible experience. But when you walk out of there, you're like, I did that, right? And now I can't do that every day. It's 90 minutes of my life. So I now ice plunge in the morning. So every morning I get up and I jump in my ice plunge and it's, I think, 47 degrees. That's as cold as I could do it right now. But it's freezing and I never want to do it. <laughs> How do you motivate yourself? No, no, look, completely get the work that you love. And I completely get that you have quite a lot of responsibility and and it's good that you're in a you know if, if you don't mind me saying I'm pleased that you chose the path that you chose rather than yoga because you've got six kids yeah, yeah. To pay for, right and it's not that's cheap. right um, I probably would have only had two kids if I yeah. was in yoga yeah. and you get up every morning at 4am and you put yourself in a plunge bath uh yeah. plunge pool I mean you know people sometimes a lot of people scrape themselves out of bed at 7 seven thirty to get into work and, and they love their jobs quote unquote yeah. How do you do that? How do you deal with the maybe the more difficult mornings or the moments yes. around the sink, as you mentioned there, that you do have struggles with? What, what What's your go-to plan there? Yes. Well, my husband would be the first to tell you there are days that I do not do that. Like I will just sit there. And I, I think um, probably the biggest methodology mindset that I have is recommit. So no matter what, and I tell this to people that like I talk to all the time that are like, how do you just stay motivated? I'm like, it's okay to have a day when you're like, I just don't want to do it. And it's okay to feel bad. Like, oh man, I should not have eaten that. Or I should not have missed my morning routine. I should have meditated when I always meditate. And your day goes a little differently because you break that routine or because you don't do the thing you promised yourself to do. And the way that I stay motivated is actually, it's kind of a little hack, if you will, where I, I set up these short-term goals, right? So meditation, drinking water, I actually write them with a dry erase uh, marker on my mirror in my bathroom and I have a little checkbox for the week and I will just check it off. 
And it doesn't matter what it is because all I'm doing is I'm promising myself I'm going to do something. And then at the end of seven days, I now have no one else knows this, maybe my husband, but no one else knows this but me that I, I said I was going to do it and I did it. And that's that's literally like the brain activity that I'm I want to make a promise to myself and I'm going to keep it. And when I, I started with that long before I started ice bathing. So it's not like you could just jump in and every day start ice bathing with no, but I have all these little mental discipline kind of routines that say, don't you want to keep this promise to yourself? That's literally what the voice in my head says when you're in, I I could tell myself no. And every time I'm like, I should have just done it. Why didn't I just do it every time? I'm like, why did I just get up? But sometimes I don't. And, but that's okay. Cause the next day I recommit as if I never failed, as if I never missed it. And this is, I think what happens, like we let those moments of not doing what we're supposed to or missing the mark. We let that turn into a day, to a week, to a month, to where we never even do it again. How many of us have bought like exercise equipment that like, we're going to do it every day. And then we miss one day and that one day turns into, well, forever. And now we're hanging sweaters on it, right? Like I have a rule in my house that we have, uh, we're Peloton people. So I have a Peloton upstairs by my desk. uh, So when I get up, I could just work out. And then I have one downstairs, I have a tread. Um, I want to row so bad, but I promise myself, I have to want it for a year before I can buy. (laughs) So I'm waiting. Um, But I, I told, I told everyone in the house knows you don't put anything on it. Like you can't put clothes on it. You can't put like a cup on it. Like the only thing you can do is work out on it. And it's a reminder every day that you don't just, you know, you don't make a promise to yourself and then just hang it on the shelf. And I think that's a big, again, part of like my mental, like the voices in my head, they're all much more like cheerleaders now than they've ever been in my life. Where in the past, they'd be like, yeah, you don't need to do that. <laughs> right? Like, you don't have to go, who needs an ice bath? Like most people, and that's like what you just said, most people don't do this. Like most people won't get up. Like you're good. You did it once. Like that's amazing. More people, you've done more than everyone else on the planet. But now my voices have shifted to like, don't you want to keep that promise to yourself? Don't you want to check that box on the mirror? Don't you? And I do. I Granted, I am ambitious. So if you're not ambitious and you don't want to do more, (laughs) you might not be able to talk yourself out of bed. But where where ambition comes in, I think, is is in that mission, right? In in what is your purpose? Because if you have a purpose that ties to what gets you out of bed in the morning, I think that helps a little bit. But that's hard, a hard question to answer for a lot of people. Yeah. And it's 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 inspiring. And I, I think that the achieving success even just in one format is a great place to start so you read a lot that that they that they advise that when you get out of bed make your bed because yes. you've then done one thing there in the day that you've done successfully and you've now then taken it to the next level yes. well and I will tell you I don't make my bed but what I do do is take my comforter and now I've gotten so good at it that I could just do this one time and it like covers the whole bed and I'm like yeah that looks amazing who knows what it looks like yeah <laughs> and everything. but it does make you feel like like a sense of cleanness and like finishedness uh as you get up and so I also encourage people to do that like you don't have to make it per se but like at least straighten the comforter put the pillows up um yeah. walk away from your bed as if you finished that part of your experience for the day I do right. think that helps does the um does this like, ambition and this a uh, need to want to keep pushing yourself and driving uh you know a, a, 
I suppose, aiming for something that's harder and harder and harder. Does that yes. come from your childhood? Does that come from, do you know where that derived from? Yeah, well, it's probably, it could turn into like a psychology session. <laughs> but <laughs> but I'm a twin. Um, uh, so I have a twin brother and my brother is incredible, like in a whole different way. He's an artist. He was creative director at Twitter for over a decade, like is now involved in the MGM spheres. I don't know if you've seen these in Las Vegas. It's a huge sphere that has this 3D, I think it's 4D. I don't know. It's crazy what he's like. And and I feel like as a twin, you're, oh, and I know a lot of twins as a result, but as a twin, you're always like, where's my spot in the world? Because this person takes up my whole birthday <laughs> and, and my whole childhood. Like I always shared kind of the, the spot. And so I took the, literally I took science on the back end. Like I would, I, I would always be like, Oh yeah, I work on this software and no one would know what it was. I'm like, you know, bank of America. Yeah. Everything it does. I do that stuff on the back. Like what makes it work? No one for decades until Alexa, no one knew what I did for a living. My brother was a creative director. So everything he did was art and games and graphics. And so I was like, but so you could see what he did. Right. <laughs> right? Like, and so I feel like that pushed me at a very young age, 16. I remember being like, I need to get on a stage. I need to present. I need to like lead meditations at church. I need to like be in front because what I do is not visible. Um, and even to this day, I'm very uh, like drawn to teaching and learning. And the sad thing is, is that teaching is one of the lowest paid professions in the world. Like in general. Um, so I want, I'm like, I'm going to build a training company. Lowest, like if you look at per capita, lowest amount of like money and resources are in these organizations. And I was like, this is terrible. Like I am like the hidden, this hidden gem, which is why I got excited about marrying that idea to some of the biggest and best technologies, because now I can elevate the importance of education and tie it to something really valuable. Um, and that connection was, was critical for me, but yeah, that's, that was, I think from a young age, I kind of yeah. had to vie for my own position in the family. Okay. I wanted attention. Um, yeah. And now looking back, I mean, everything I do, I do. So somebody will be like, that's great. You did awesome. <laughs> I've got a picture of in my for head. For good or bad. For good or yeah. bad. I've got a picture in my head of you and your brother when, when you see each other on whenever. Yes. Uh, instead of like giving each other a hug, you have a quick arm wrestle. Just yeah, to- yeah. You know, <laughs> see who wins. Yeah, but we're we're Hispanic, so we do with our eyes. Right. <laughs> we're <Right>. like, <laughs> but yeah, very much so. Right. Nice I feel like we're, we're sort of dropping a lot of hints and breadcrumbs, but for those listening that that don't know Noel, it would be useful just to get get a bit of an understanding as to the trajectory that you've had within your career. You've mentioned Amazon, you've mentioned a couple of other things that you did, but as a quick rundown, because I know you've accomplished so much today, but very sort of uh, top line, where did you start? Where are you now? What does, what does all that look like? Yeah, it's actually, it is an incredible journey that I could not, I mean, looking back on it, I'm like, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> what I did, but my journey actually was a bit time uh, connected, similar to what I'm doing today, um, where it was the first time the world was going to end, Y2K, if anyone remembers this time. And it was very similar to today where there wasn't a huge requirement. Like people just needed individuals to come into the field and participate. Like they they were like, we just, we'll train you on the job. We just need people who want to learn how to write code. In this case, it was 
um, COBOL or Fortran and then turning it into Java. Java was becoming the like fastest growing language like Python is today, but this was Java 20 years ago. Yeah. And so I ended up going to IBM. That was my first job. And again, I married my ability to convey information and be excited and energetic. I have been this way my whole life. Um, but about technology. And so I would teach to, I will tell you just the other day, I was um, in a room full of executives and one of the executives was like, oh my gosh, you taught me Java like 20 years ago. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it's amazing. So it was really cool. And he was a person of color, like African-American guy. It was so cool. I was so excited. I was so happy. I was like, and we both survived. Like we're both still in the game, which is another story altogether. Um, but I started at IBM. I was actually there 12 years. I was, uh, I wrote a couple books. I was all about WebSphere application server, which is this middleware, super popular platform for IBM at the time. And then Red Hat poached me in order to do open source middleware, open source everything. And I realized, like, I really liked the idea of open source, but not open source in the traditional sense, like community development but how do we leverage a community of people to build something that's accessible, right? That a lot of people care about, but then productize it so an enterprise can use it safely and responsibly. And that's exactly what we do today. Um, but I loved Red Hat's perspective on that. So I stayed there. I was the only woman globally in the area of solution architecture, which I think is ridiculous. But that was the truth at that time. <laughs> um, from there, I went to another critical moment. So I, we're, we're doing like middleware, good old fashioned code. Uh, enterprise architecture. I went from there to VMware. And at that time, VMware was looking at how do we provide cloud services or virtualization services, right? How do we help organizations break apart their big old machines and use more of it? And this was right before AWS became a thing, right? I was an early developer on the developer services that Amazon released. Um, mm -hmm. I remember the tiny little it had three services, I think, when I first started using it. Now there's hundreds. Um, but I started there right when virtualization was kind of taking, I don't know, getting some play. I was part of Pivotal Cloud Foundry's launch, um, which was a huge big data organization and company. And then Amazon picked me up, which maybe seems like, of course they would. Um, but I went there to help launch their cloud platform, right, AWS. And mm -hmm. I was training trainers. And this is when like my AI journey started. So 10 years ago this summer, which seems crazy, 10 years ago this summer, um, Amazon Alexa was born. Jeff Bezos sent out this really cool email and said, hey, who wants to join this party? We're starting a new thing. And I said, yes, even though everyone around me was like, I don't know if you want to do that. <laughs> but I was like, and here, I guess it ties back to what we talked about before. Yeah. Like the reason I said yes was different than everyone else. Like everyone else around me was like, Maybe that's cool. Or, oh, I just got promoted. I don't really want to move. I was like, my son can talk to tech with this. This is amazing. I am in, 100% in. So I jumped into that role and, and stayed there for four years, which is, uh, you know, I think two decades in Amazon time. Um, and so I launched Amazon Alexa. I built over, I don't know, over 100 applications in my first year. I have 2 million unique users of those skills right now. Like people are still calling on the applications I built for Alexa. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about those. And then I ended up in Microsoft. So like you can see, I'm like IBM, Red Hat, which is ironic because they're now family. Um, and then I went to Pivotal Cloud Foundry, which is like the big data world onto AWS, Alexa. Now at Microsoft, I launched uh, Cognitive Services as part of an amazing group of, of leaders there. 
Uh, we launched 17 research models into production over the course of a summer. It was crazy and super fun. Um, and, and that led me to probably my most fun, maybe fangirl gig, which was National Public Radio. So I ended up at National Public Radio leading during the pandemic and the election year that we all try to forget, um, or maybe all, not all of us, but some of us try to forget. But we were really worried at that time about deep fakes. And uh, so I joined NPR as part of the, I stand with the facts and I care about truth. And how do we make sure technology doesn't obfuscate the truth? And, and so all of these moments, though, were yes moments. I always tell people when you're approaching like a decision, Many times there's lots of reasons to say no to something. I very rarely say no to an opportunity that ties into my goals. Like very rarely, like I'll at least try it. What's the worst thing that'll happen? Um, so yeah, that's my whirlwind tour in two and a half minutes of my 25 year career. But thanks so much for asking, David. <laughs> hey, so I think I think it's an amazing uh, progression path. And when you talk to different people and see the, the twists and turns that they have within their career and the yes. reasons behind them, it, it can become even more interesting sometimes. And clearly your passion for, you know, helping your son uh, and people yes. who are in a similar situation has led you into the world of AI, which is obviously now a booming part of, of technology. Just a quick pause to the podcast to share with you a charity very close to our hearts, Prevent Breast Cancer, who are just incredibly passionate about stopping the disease before it starts. Prevent Breast Cancer promote healthier lifestyles, screening and early diagnosis. They make sure 100% of their research funding is focused on preventing breast cancer for future generations. They're the only UK charity entirely dedicated to the prediction and prevention of breast cancer. They're right at the front line in the fight against the disease. And we are right behind them. Just on Alexa and, and conversational AI in general, I guess give us a, a quick explanation of its, its progression path since Alexa came about, where it's at now, how the everyday person's using it, how your clients uh, are utilising it. My kids ask Alexa for the time <laughs> and the weather. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we have, we have over 100 Alexa devices, or I should say voice-enabled devices. They're not all Alexas, but they're all voice-enabled, all connected, um, in order to provide this contextual experience wherever, anywhere you are. You can either add things to a shopping cart, play your favourite music, do a timer. Oftentimes our kids, I mean, I don't know if you remember, I know when my kids were younger, before we had this, my older kids were younger, Um I would have to facilitate this turn taking, right? I'd be like, no, 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 it's not your turn. Now it's your turn. And now Alexa does this for us, right? Where they they will set a timer and be like, you can play that game for five minutes and then it's my turn. And I love it. Like it's completely <laughs> giving them autonomy in human connection and in human interaction um, and figuring things out on their own, which I think is amazing. Uh, but conversational AI, I actually, maybe I'm biased, but I do think that Alexa helped you know, the world understand how to talk to their technology in a kind of normal way. I mean, I remember Google Glasses when it came out and there was a bit of, or a lot of resistance in the world of like, we're going to do what now? We're going to wear what? That technology was ahead of its time. Luckily, Google doesn't throw anything out, right? So they kept building on it and we're going to see cool stuff coming out soon. But the at the time that they launched Google Glasses, the world was like, ah, I'm not sure. But Amazon Alexa, and I will tell you, even when we started with Amazon Alexa, 
I would get on stage. I was one of the first evangelists for the platform. I think it was the second evangelist hired. Um, and as part of the evangelist role, I would get on stage all across the world. And in the beginning, people would be like, huh, <laughs> They're like, so we're going to talk to a device in our kitchen. I mean, maybe, maybe that's useful. And it was definitely geared towards the affluent, right? Towards a specific demographic of people. And I think one of the funniest stories at the beginning was we never actually thought about what would happen if people bought two. We only ever thought people would ever have one and it would be in their kitchen. And all of our use cases were built for that persona, if you will, right? And um, immediately we were like, like the very next year, we ended up running into a situation where people were buying one for their kitchen, one for their living room. And we would have these, there's tons of YouTube videos on these battles that would happen between not just Alexa's, but then two years later, Google came out and said there'd be Alexa plus Google. It was just, it was a bit funny from an implementer's perspective, a little bit annoying from a, a consumer's perspective. Um, but it got us talking to technology, right? Executing AI, like we're talking to AI every day. I remember doing a heat map of all of the countries in the world. And there were only three countries in the world that did not have an Alexa device hitting servers on at Amazon. And I thought I was like, this is pretty impressive. Like we should be talking about this. So which is why I ended up talking about it for a long time. Um, I also was really interested in the evolution. So one of the things I thought that was really cool about Alexa was that in the beginning, I'd say around year two or three, we were able to identify the answer to your question, like halfway between, you know, maybe three or four words into your sentence. And I don't know if you know this, um, but if you think about like people who finish your sentences, it's not a super great experience when people constantly. Finish. So even though we could predict exactly what you were going to ask for, we could go out, search for the answer and give it back to you and cut you off and give you your answer and be magical. Um, our users were not super excited about that. And I think generative AI is kind of going up against that same challenge right now is there are amazing things we can do, but users are going to be like, ew, I'm not sure I want you to do that. I don't know that I want to know that you know those things yeah. about me. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, there's a couple of really quick questions that come to mind. Who named it Alexa? Why Alexa? It's a great question. Um, <laughs> so... There's a lot of myth and lore around this. In the beginning, um, so there's a huge library in the world. And if you know a little bit about Alexa and how it's built, the applications for Alexa are called skills. And the idea was that we were going to teach Alexa all these skills and it would be able to do new things. And as a matter of fact, the developer community for Alexa is one of the richest developer communities in conversational AI. So I love it. Um, and, and, and I don't mean rich, like in, I mean, maybe in the financial sense. <laughs> But I actually meant in like the content sense, there's so many diverse experiences because of the developer community that was created there. Um, but there's this library, Alexandria, and that is the original like, hey, let's use, you know, Alexandria, Alexa, that sounds great. But enter linguists and data scientists who then are looking for a word that will have the least amount of challenges getting false wake ups, right? It didn't actually end up solving this problem, but it reduced it significantly in the consonant-vowel-consonant kind of coordination, right? So the lexicon 
and that the word organization of the word Alexa made it much, oh, and I <laughs> be careful I don't trigger my own devices, <laughs> um, but makes it much easier, right, for that device to not accidentally wake up and listen to you. We still have that happen even to this day. It actually, I think, is probably worse today than it was at the beginning. Um, but now we have lots of other wake words, which is what that's called. But that was the original idea. Um, Jeff Bezos wanted to make sure we all realize like this is meant to be a library of knowledge that keeps growing and building. Um, and I liked that idea. Um, and then of course the data scientists are like, no, actually it has nothing to do with that story. It's just because it's a good word. It's definitely both. It's definitely yeah. both. <laughs> I imagine that there has been far fewer girls named Alexa in oh, the last 10 years in the same <laughs> way that my sister is called karen and i don't think there's many karens anymore yes so <laughs> uh, sad like we're gonna have to wait a whole generation for people to like yeah. forget yeah uh, maybe more than one um yeah. yeah it's kind of sad as a matter of fact there was um there's a whole group of women actually who reached out to me who have daughters uh that have this name and their daughters were like in first and second grade in 2016 which was one of the most popular years that alexa was born and it was really unfortunate because they came up to me and they're like, why would you name a device after a person? Why would you do that? And I was like, ah, I'm just the messenger. I don't know. Um, but I got very interested in the use case because I was like, well, like really what difference does it make? There's lots of products that have human names. There's not a lot of products that are products you talk to, um, that you call to, and that you actually command. And what I found out was the experience for these young girls is that they were getting bullied in school. They were getting like things knocked off their desk, knocked out of their hands, and they were being commanded to pick things up. Like, Alexa, pick up your books. Alexa, go to the bathroom. Alexa, go to the playground. To the point where the kids would come home. And I'll tell you, I've had this experience when a kid comes home and says, I want to change my name. And you're like, I gave you that name. <laughs> First, you go through all the stages of grief. Like, wait a second. No, uh, I gave you that name. That's my name. Now I'm angry. And then, but then you get sad about like, what must an experience be like to ask for your name to be changed? A name yeah. that you grew up with. Like that's, it's horrible. And it's a, it's one of the inclusive engineering practices I think about is how do we think about those kinds of things? Like it was out of our realm of conception that people would ever get hurt, hurt by, yeah. you know, like a name of a device. If we had asked those people, maybe we would have uncovered that. Who yeah, knows? I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the the room when Alexa was yes. born and the thinking behind it and obviously the the elements of having of talking to technology is is amazing but then obviously that human impact and and the person's name i mean yes there's yeah, i listen to my kids talking to alexa in a pretty rude way right yeah um, whereas if it was a human i'd be saying you can't talk to someone like that yeah and alexa gets shouted at in our house yeah she yes. doesn't listen to us I'm like, alexa Oh, I'm shouting and there's no pleases, no thank yous. No. Um, there was a whole press cycle. Some Someone yeah. wrote an article saying that, and I can't quote it because it used a bad word, but it was like, Alexa's turning my kids into jerks, we'll say. Um, and and we as a team took it to heart. And actually someone um, on the team, a data scientist, went in and added please and thank you. Because the worst part about it was it would break if you said please. Like, it's bad enough that we don't say it. But even if you tried to say it, if I, I told my kids, please say please and thank you when you talk to Alexa, like you would a human, like be nice. Um, it would break. Like, it would literally not answer the question if you added that. So it was, kind of, I thought it was an interesting um, part of 
reality for data science projects like this is that it came down to a very individual person saying, I'm going to change this. And that change impacted 100 million users, right? Like there are individuals, people like me, fingers on a keyboard, building stuff that impacts 100 million households. Like that seems like a lot of impact for an individual. And there weren't a lot of guardrails at that point, right? We, were, we weren't even sure what we were going to, what we were doing was going to work. <laughs> like there was no precedent for that technology. And so that's why today when I talk about AI, I always say, you know, don't think about the persona you want to create this for. You have to think big. You have to set your intention wide because I never thought about Alexa. Oh, I shouldn't say that. I thought about Alexa in the classroom, but no one else did. I thought about Alexa as a mom, as a caregiver. I thought about it for the elderly, but everyone around me was like, we should build a workout app. We should build a timer. We should build a music, you know, music selection. We should build sleep sounds, which is one of the most popular skills on Alexa today. But, you know, like who's the mom in the room? Who's the cat owner? Who's the dog owner? Who's the, you know, I always say like, you got to have this inclusive symphony of people building this technology. Otherwise, when you go to production, the people who aren't served will be upset or worse, you'll actually hurt them. Like you'll actually infringe on their ability to use that technology to help their lives be better. And that's no data scientist wants that. But we're so far from the user that we have no idea the impact of the choices that we make every day. Yeah. yeah. And one of the questions we wanted to ask you was around, you know, if we think that Amazon was creating Alexa, which to the person on the street, that was like groundbreaking and amazing. Yes. And I'm you know, I'm curious as to how far ahead the 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 hyperscalers are, these these companies are when it comes to the next phase technology. But but also the voice side of things, which you're 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 a big passionate fan of, clearly. Yes. What is conversational AI going to look like? What is it today? You know, we know what Alexa is. We know, you know we're all a bit conscious that our phones and Alexa are listening to us when we're talking. Yes. What is what is the the long term uh, positives and negatives of conversational AI? You know, one of the, there's two different lenses here. One, of course, is around privacy. And we have some challenges around privacy, especially as we move into web apps or mobile apps that have um, access to our phones, which I, I always tell people, if you're worried about Alexa, like you should be much more worried about this. You know, Alexa is not telling Instagram that you just had a conversation <laughs> and, and then adding ads to your your uh, to your phone. Have you seen the Black Mirror episode? Oh gosh, I try not to. I try not to. It's a little too close to home for me. <laughs> but I have to let my husband see it because I'm like, this is, I always reference Black Mirror like in my keynotes. I'm like, I'm going to go Black Mirror for a second because you should be there for a yeah. minute. Yeah. Before I come back and talk about the good stuff. Um, and many people don't even, I'm glad though. It's a scary, scary series. Um, but it's entirely possible, which is why I can't watch it. Like, and going back to what I just mentioned about the data scientists, like it, it's in the hands of individual creators. Like there is no, you know, huge like consortium of companies that are like, yeah. wow, we should make sure we don't hurt people. Wow. We should make sure we don't build the Terminator. Like, there is this small group of people called AI ethicists that are screaming really loud, like, hey, we should be careful with this. And then a whole bunch of people who have no idea what they're doing using chat GPT through natural language, and they don't even know what the machine learning is behind it. Like that is the the danger in velocity. And I always I have this principle, leadership principle that I follow called, you know, clarity over velocity. Like the danger in velocity is that you lose the clarity of what you're building, right? Because you get 
And Alexa was like this. Microsoft was like this. We get so excited about building the new thing. And the hard part is that it actually serves some people and it serves them well. And so they give you all this positive feedback. And before you know it, everyone around you is like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Until you like take a step out of that echo chamber and you look around and you're like, oh my goodness, like black in healthcare and Hispanics in education. And like, there's all these pockets that are underserved and are actually amplified in that underserving with this technology. Because I mean, today I just saw this article I, I see articles all the time and whenever I see it and there's like four or five voices recognized, not one of them is brown, not one of them is a woman. I'm like, we are repeating mistakes we know cause bad, bad things to happen. Yeah. Um, and so diversity, and that's why it's not always about gender. It's not always about ethnicity. That's certainly part of it because at least you can see it and know that it's there. But it's about this like symphony of talent, this neurodiversity, because the AI you're building, as and this is true for, you had mentioned, you know, what are we doing for our clients? It's really educating them that their clients are this vast, like hundreds of millions or billions of people, and you can't build a persona to represent them all. So what you need to do is have a team that actually is empathetic to as many of those needs as possible. And that is a challenge um, because our leadership will just say is not rep representative of that idea, right? right. So- I've got tons of companies, I won't name them, but tons of companies that have these uh, gender parity goals, right? We're going to have 50% women in the organization. We're going to have a certain percentage of diversity from an ethnicity perspective, all very noble and good, except those metrics only count for the workers. They don't actually count against leadership or executive leadership. And I was like, wait, that's way worse, I think, than if I'm going to hire a bunch of brown people to be, you know, like, ew, ew, yeah. ew. So I have to be really careful about how do we build a leadership team? And it, like I said, it's not really about color. It's just easy to identify. It's more about leaders that care to listen to the moms in the room, right? To the doctors in the room, to the people who didn't graduate from high school, to the people that graduated from Ivy League. Like all of us will build an AI solution that serves a different demographic. And you need all of them today. Like that is a critical part, I think, of, of what makes an, a successful AI project. We talk about... Uh, conversational AI, generative AI, and the the main thing that we know right now today that it's not doing is the critical thinking side of things. Yes, um, and and the creativity side of things, and people from different backgrounds, whether it's racial background, gender background, whatever it may be, bring different thinking to the table, yes. and that's what really allows us to sort of have that diverse thought process and and diverse creativity doing whatever it is you may do i think it's really interesting that you talk about diversity in general because i think earlier you said vmware you were the only female in the architecture oh, red hat yeah red hat i was the only female solution architect and this was like in the 2000s like we're not talking about the 1900s <laughs> exactly how, how have you seen that evolve over the past 20 years 15 years uh, so I'm extremely frustrated by it. I haven't seen it evolve at all. But the good news is, is that there's some data that shows our pipeline is better. So a lot of like younger kids are seeing themselves because there are representatives that are, you know, public that are saying, hey, if you look like me, you can do this work, which is literally as simple as the message needs to be. So our pipeline is getting better. But here's the, the unfortunate part. Um, and this has not changed, is that if you 
are not, if you don't look like everyone else, you have to work a little bit and sometimes a lot harder to be seen as the same. I will often tell a group of diverse people that they'll have to work twice as hard to keep their seat at the table. And I see this all the time. Like when I look at people, uh, you know, generally that are underrepresented, like to a uh, majority holder, right? In the a majority voice in the room, they might get one certification. An underrepresented person would need to get three or five in order to just stand kind of at that same level, get the same recognition, get brought into the same meetings, get advocated in the same way. Like I am over the top. I've done so much ridiculously more than every, than most of my peers. Um, and I'm just barely at the table. Like I'm barely able to, I, it takes me a long time to build trust. And it's not because of me. It's just because of systemic bias. Um, and so I think there's a big issue. It hasn't gotten better. I think that my hope is that we can get more leaders because here's what happens. A woman will get into a project, realize that it's not fair, that she has to work harder to get the same level of recognition and promotion than her peers. And she's going to quit. And that's what happens. Like right now, people just quit. And I don't know if you remember like quiet quitting and the great resignation, like a bunch of those were women going, yeah, I don't have to do this. Like, why do I have to work harder? And I actually struggle with my own daughter. Like, do I tell her to move into a field like this where she has to be extra in order to be the same? It's, it's not, it's unfortunate. And I don't see it getting better because we still have all male panels. We still have all white, like you go into a tech conference and it's still a sea of the same people and little sprinkles of people like me. We're in the world of talent, right? So we're always looking to provide solutions to yes. clients and, you know, I suppose, industries and how we change the face of industries so that, as you said before, there's diversity in thought because we need diversity in thought in order to get the best outcomes. As we sit here in 2023 and you say that it's not really improved, it's not really changed. You know, I remember talking about this with clients 10 years ago and and obviously yeah. right on the, you know, the company that you work for, you know, have this wanting to have 50-50 uh, gender parity come 2025, I believe. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that they've moved, you know, heaven and earth in their gender. Yes. Part. Yes, and it's very, very, like, it's very exciting. They, I think we're up 47%, which is crazy. Yeah. Great. Yeah. How do we overcome the issue of gender diversity up to the most senior levels of the of executives and so that the panels are not because women, let's just use women as, as yep. a subject, sure. not just women should be there, but because they should, they're there because they've got great content and they're as good as anyone else. And how do we get there then? And I'm not saying that, you know, it's going to be easy to implement it, but if you had a white piece of paper, what would you do? What would you suggest? Yes. Um, well, the first thing is support, like executive support. So I will tell you that there was a whole over the, you know, remember these tech layoffs that just happened. One of the buckets of people that got laid off were executive coaches. And it for a certain demographic in the company, that's not a big deal. They're like, I barely use that person anyway. But for someone like me, I cried that day. Like I literally was like, you were the only way for me to get past some of these systemic challenges that I am, it's like a glass ceiling, literally the glass ceiling. And so I had someone who was kind of above that glass ceiling, like able to pull me up. That's the person who would identify that's a good sponsor. That's a good mentor. Like figure you know, this person, they usually have a lot of 
inherent knowledge of how the organization works. And when you choose to, because again, if you're looking at just by the numbers and your numbers are predominantly not based on underrepresented, you're going to actually take away services from the people who need it the most. And people like me, especially executives, as they get into, uh, you know, later into their career, 20 plus years, our tolerance for bad behavior, like gets really short. Like I have very little tolerance for bad behavior. If you treat me badly, there's a ton of places I can go. Like, I'm not going to stay and have you diminish who I'm, who I want to be. Um, and, and you can see a sea of these books have been written podcasts about women specifically, but people of color who get into places where they're like, okay, I got this position. And then they're not given the team that they need to do the work. They're not supported. They don't have an executive coach. Like they have nothing to battle against the systemic. I mean, I'm still the only girl woman on a call of 20 people at least twice a day. I'll get on a call, 20 people, and I'm the only female. Like, how is that possible in today's world? Yeah. <laughs> it's not even, I couldn't go to the mall and be the, you know, like in a store. I couldn't walk on the sidewalk and be the only girl. Like, it doesn't make sense to me that we are maintaining this disparity. Um, and it's worse at executive leadership. So I think yeah. that's my hope is, and I actually do think like search and succeed, like, I think this is something you could help with. Actually, you, I think you do help with this. You just didn't help. You weren't my person. Um, but but providing that executive coaching, right? Providing someone to talk to when you are witnessing bad behavior to walk you back from the ledge. Because something I was told a long time ago, which is definitely true, is that when women specifically, but underrepresented in general, when we experience something bad, we paint the entire organization with that color. We're like, the whole place is bad. And what I found, honestly, especially being at big companies like Amazon and Microsoft and IBM, is that it's totally not that way, right? If if you have the patience and the discipline, hence the ice baths, to deal with something bad in the moment, take a step back, take a deep breath, and then say, okay, is this a thing? Do I need to be worried about this? Or can I just take a step back and out into a different part of the organization where I will be supported? And every time I've left a company, I've left because I sensed I could, I was not welcome there. And, and the reason I felt that was not because I wasn't welcome in the entire company of IBM. It was because the one little sliver of the world that I was in was, for whatever reason, not a fan. <laughs> and there's lots of research on this of how people become disenamored with changers. Like I'm a changer. I come in and I fruit basket turnover things to make them better. Good news is what I touch turns to gold. So that's good news, but it's a chemicalization process. And people don't like that, especially if you've been in the company 30 years, you don't want someone coming in and fruit basket turnovering something that has been working fine for two decades. Yeah. And so once that happens, though, it's really important for someone to get some executive guidance on how do I continue the path towards the ambitious goals that you have without painting the entire company as like, oh, they don't want, they, they can't see what I see. They don't want what I want. Because every single time, two, three levels up from wherever I was in the company, when I talk to them, maybe I do a podcast with them, they'll be like, if I had known, I would have pulled you into my organization. Every company I've left, I've had people be like, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you come to me? I'm like, I, oh, and maybe that's the other part. 
is that we ultimately feel very alone. It's very lonely being the only woman. It's also very lonely being the only brown woman. And goodness, if you are, you know, uh, have a different way of identifying like LGTB, whatever that is, LGTBQ, right? Um, and I have two transgender children. Like if, if you are in this space, like, and you check a bunch of these boxes, the world becomes very hard by yourself. Um, and so creating not just community, because I don't want to sit in a world with 20 people talking about problems. Like, I want one person, a best friend who can tell me, calm down or, you know, no, stick to your guns or take a break or go on vacation or read a book. Like, these are the types of guidance that I've gotten that have changed the trajectory of me wanting to, like, walk away from something that wasn't yeah. appetizing. Yeah. And, and, you know, you know, we're big advocates of executive coaching. Uh, not just when you join it works. at any moment right and I think that it goes back a little bit to that standing around the, the sink doing your dishes getting actually a little bit yes. frustrated because we are humans and even though we're in positions of significant influence and power and responsibility we have our human side to us where where we can't see the wood for the trees or where you know yes exactly a little bit of guidance or coaching it just kind of helps us overcome some of those moments and yeah. you know i've spoken especially to especially when they're not your hr person right because that's the solution that many of us are given is like well here's your hr business partner they will coach you and it's as you mentioned totally different dynamic and yeah. you don't you know like it it ends up not being as helpful as yeah. i think organizations think yeah, yeah, I mean, you can see my face. People who are listening can't because I, I, I talk all the time about external executive coaching is fun. Is how you get the best out of your people, and you're a leader, Noel. You know, you, you, you're. A, I can only imagine an exceptional leader because you're so people focused, and I imagine that if you were to advise your anyone that works for you, if they, if you were able to to have support or coaching, that it would probably have that external element um yeah do you how do you find leading in 2023 um and the generation that's coming through the next generation of leaders but that are a different generation to mine and the previous generations as well yes I think it's a really exciting time because um my philosophy which kind of was abrasive to the generations that came before me this learning by doing tinkering playing around pressing buttons that you don't know what will happen when you press them right we, the generation before me was the one that said, oh, it's, it's, if it's a red button, don't press it. Like, we don't know what happens, but definitely don't press it. <laughs> and I, I feel like, you know, I was a generation of like, I mean, what would happen if we press it? We should at least think about pressing it. And now we've got this collection of generations that are like, just press it, see what happens. <laughs> and <I> think, <laughs> yes. And I think that that's a good balance. Right. And I actually do, we, we were talking about neurodiversity. I also think like, you know, gender, age, like it's a complete symphony. I want people who are like, don't press that button because they cause me to, I'm a mover. I'm a, I'm a pre button presser. Like I will just do it and see what happens after. But I do appreciate those people that will cause me to pause, right? There was a book recently called Slow Thinking and Fast Thinking or something like that. Um, and it was talking about how important it is to have those people that are the planners and the Excel spreadsheet writers for their vacation and, you know, like those organizers, as well as those people that think fast and just build and do and, um, and, but 
together, right? I mean, it's literally like the COO plus the CEO, right? Or CTO or whatever. Yeah. Um, but that combination of skills is super, is critical. So I always tell like young people, I think they're excited to see a leader like myself because it, it gives them license to be creative, to bring their, I mean, we talk, we've been talking about this for decades, bring your authentic self to work. Um, I never say that those words to someone because I want to demonstrate it, right? I want to be like, no, look, like I, sometimes I wear hoodies. I wear, sometimes I wear stilettos and sometimes I wear Converse sneakers, <laughs> like, and it doesn't actually matter. Like there's no dictation of who I have to be. I remember as a young person working at IBM, I changed, I code switched. I changed everything about me. I put my hair in a bun. I wore these fake glasses and I taught older people like twice my age, how to build job applications. And luckily one of them is an executive today. So I feel like I'm a success, <laughs> but the, you know, the challenge with that is that I lost myself in trying to fit in and trying to be what they needed me to be in order to hear what I had to say. And I think younger, you know, are a generation that's coming in, these newer leaders are looking for a reason to just be themselves because they have good ideas that they yeah. can practice, that they can fail fast. And, and now I even think we can fail fast and not break things. Like, I, you know, I think I was probably of the generation of like, oh yeah, press the button, see what happens. Maybe it breaks. Oh, well, right. Like the Mark Zuckerberg and the, um, you know, like all of these IT leaders were very innovative, but almost at all costs, right? And I think we have a, a socially minded set of leaders that are coming into um, the world that give me hope that we're, yes, going to be the ones that press the button, but we're also going to be thoughtful and intentional and mindful. We're going to worry about consequences. We're going to be accountable. Um, and I think it's it's a good evolution, right? From don't press the button at all to, hey, we should be intentional about it to, hey, let's press it and be intentional. Right. <laughs> like, I think I think it's a it's good news it's for good us. Balance, um, it's, yes, a good balance, exactly. A good exactly. balance for sure of be calculated, you know, let's think about the consequences, but express yourself, you know, feel yes. express yourself in the way that you need to be. I imagine there's plenty of people that work for organizations and uh, that that perhaps get maybe institutionalized a little bit or feel like yes. they can't express themselves just because their peers down the, the corridors don't. And what might they miss? What might be missing from their output potentially? I mean, Absolutely. You know, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, yeah, and I would maybe only add one thing that I think is interesting. It's a philosophy that I have, which is to be the most positive person in the room. And that allows me to, you know, especially younger people, right, being positive as opposed to critical or even just neutral gives you the ability for you to gain like interest, excitement, right? Being positive, energetic. It is not like you don't have to feel it like you can just you know, I, I I honestly say sometimes I'll start a call and I'll be tired and I literally will just turn it on. Like I will be like, I'm going to be happy about this. I created a skill on Alexa called one minute mindfulness and it's one minute, 60 seconds where I'm just meant to breathe and choose to be happy, choose to be excited, choose to be the one person in the room that makes everyone else be like, oh my gosh, I could be more excited about this. I wish I was more excited about this. Um, and I feel like that's another part of, of kind of leaders that are coming into this world. Like we have a chance to change the DNA of the organizations we're joining. And whenever you change the DNA of anything, like it, it's a it's a challenging process. 
But the more positive you can be about it, I think the better your ideas will be received. Or at mm-hmm. least that's been my experience. Being like that is contagious. Uh, yes, people, I agree. You definitely respond to that type of attitude, mentality very, very well, usually. What's the secret sauce, Noel, to being able to switch on to being happy? I would say it's very much, I don't want to say you have to go meditate. Um, Maybe it's a mindfulness practice, but it's the space you can create between your reaction to something and how you feel about something. So many times our feelings and our reactions are like, tied together. So as soon as something, and this happens to me all the time, uh, somebody will say something and it will like trigger me. um, And I will immediately react emotionally about the thing. And the more that I spend time kind of in meditation and I, or, or mindfulness, right. Where I'm focusing on my breath. It's why I do cold baths, right. Where a bad thing happens. Like I get very cold, very fast. I can barely breathe. And sometimes I feel like this in some of the meetings that I'm in, but I can barely breathe. I'm like super intense emotion. And then I I have to separate, right? Like my emotion from what's happening. And so it takes, in the beginning, it took four minutes for me to be able to like calm down after being in this ice bath. Now within about 30 seconds, I can like get my breath and I can laugh. I can smile. Like the first two months I did this, I could not smile. I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) Um, But like, how do you create your own way of practicing? And so you could do it in your mind. This is how people used to do it. They would just do visual exercises of visualizing yourself doing something that makes you nervous or having a conversation that makes you uncomfortable and practice, literally practicing in your mind, visualizing yourself, like separating yourself from like the emotional reaction. And it's very hard to do, but the more you spend time like watching your emotions, the more you can be aware of them. Like when I feel anger come up, like I now know the signals my body gives me when I'm getting emotional about something. So now I have a choice. I know I can step back and not react, or I could dismiss it and react anyway. But in either case, at the end, I'm like, I totally knew that was going to (laughs) happen. Right. And that's the first step, right? The first step is admitting it. The first step is awareness. And I think that's probably a a common theme. Self-awareness is kind of a key component of the emotional intelligence it takes to be an executive. Like just being self-aware that, oh, this is, this is making me upset. I need to stop the conversation. I need to take a break and then be willing to actually take the break. Most of us, we don't think we have a choice in those moments, right? We think we just have to stick it out and that we'll be okay. And then we end up blowing up at somebody or saying something we don't mean or being just too emotional, right? In the moment to be effective at making a decision rather than being self-aware of that emotion and taking a step back. And I think that's, I've seen only a few leaders do it, but when I watch it, I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) You just did that. I want to be that way. I want to be that way. Amazing skill set. I just want to ask you because- (laughs) We should have. We could do two podcasts here, right? We've come I know. Really, <laughs> Feel free to break it up. <laughs> the psychology of, uh, of what we've learned from you also is amazing, and it. I just want to keep asking about stuff like that. To be honest with you, as well, but I also want to just, I suppose, maybe finish on the the voice, the conversational AI piece, because I know that you're very much in generative AI generally, yes. and and we've done quite a few podcasts recently on on generative AI, and and lots of great stuffs come out of that. But conversational AI is one that you know is also something that I, I think is is a less spoken about term. What does what's it going to be like in the next five years? What do we as 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 humans both 
just generally and also in companies need to um prepare ourselves for uh or, or, or just really take take as part of our lives moving forward what conversational AI is going to offer yes i think it's really exciting to think about what we've done so far so today we know how to talk to a device most of us talk to our phones or if you don't you know you could maybe you're not com- maybe you don't think it'll actually listen to you or do what it says right but we went through the last 10 years kind of training the world that you can talk to tech it wasn't very good. So what we saw with generative AI is this massive acceleration in how good that experience can be. And what I always tell my clients is that we do have to do a bit of a relaunch, right? We need to retell people that if generative AI is involved, the experience will be better. But if we think five years from now, and I'll, I'll take it from a very, like you, me, everyone listening, your live lives will all be different if you choose to actually leverage generative AI to help you do things, to augment, you know, I'll quote Satya Nadella, to augment human ingenuity by removing the drudgery of your existence. So it's literally a level of, it's kind of like Six Sigma kind of stuff, right? Do some task analysis. And this comes down to discipline. I do every day. I have a, a good old fashioned paper and pen notebook where I schedule every moment of my day. I have no white space. It doesn't mean I have meetings every day, though I used to. It means, though, every moment is accounted for in my day. So I always say I control my time. I don't manage my time. And in doing that, though, now I've got this bucketed list of stuff I'm going to do all day. How can I, five years from now, we will have the ability to create tens, hundreds, thousands of little little virtual humans, right? Little agents that can go out and do tasks for us. Anything from booking travel, finding childcare, booking the nanny we already know, uh, confirming our pest control, like all these things that we can programmatically, it's kind of like my hundred voice devices in my house. The, the challenge is not to buy the devices, right? It's not to get access to GPT. That's the easy part. It's how do you orchestrate your life in order to make your life actually better as a result of this technology? So looking at ways, and, and you had mentioned this earlier, the vernacular that each one of us uses in our day is very different. Like I talk a lot of tech, <laughs> honestly, um, but I talk a lot of tech, but the, my brother, he's an artist. So the words he uses are very different than the words I use. And so when he talks to a GPT model, it hears differently than what the model hears when I speak or when I type it in. And so think about your role. If you're a marketer or a CMO, right? If you're a operations person, if you're worried about uh, IT ops or DevOps, if you're in the legal function, if you're in in finance, like it doesn't matter. You're, the vernacular you use is how you're going to train these agents in the future. And you're going to train a bunch of little bots to say, what do I do every day? Okay. Every morning for me right now, I go through my schedule. My schedule is distributed across at least four calendars because I have a big family and I care about everybody. So Right now, not all four of those calendars are easily accessible because they don't have third-party API, blah, blah, blah. Like it's hard for them to talk. But generative AI now can go out, grab that information, copy it into a local area, right? Generate a report for me every day that fuels what I do. I don't do this today, but I know the technology is there. And actually that goes to maybe the the final point, which is the technology is there. Like you can do anything that you, any task you're currently doing, you can likely ask an AI agent to assist or augment you in that task. Because there's parts of every task that is time consuming and kind of mind numbing and not super exciting. So 
How do you think about your tasks every day? And then just pick one and start like learning by doing, go play around with GPT. The, the cool thing about generative AI is that it is a learning model. It learns by you using it. So the best thing you can do is start practicing. Don't use, you know, your credit card information or private information, but think about how could I leverage this in order to make my life better? Yeah, uh, yeah. With marketers, we just, uh, HBR, Harvard Business Review, just launched a, a, the results of a study that marketers get a 40% increase in productivity, not because it's going to generate content for them, but because it generates ideas that give them better ideas. And that was like, David, what you were saying, like we, we want to take what we are, like our creativity in our mind is like nothing that we can replicate in AI. However, to trigger our mind, to get those synapses, you know, firing, getting ideas has actually proven now to generate more ideas, more high quality ideas and get us uh, into a mind space where we build better stuff. And so I think all of us moving in that direction and understanding how we use this technology to do that is probably really great. Um, I think it's a great thing for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And it, it, it just gets you thinking, where where are we going to, you know, in, in Rob's question, asking what it's going to be like in five years time, where are we going to use it? What parts of our lives? What tasks is it going to be able to take over for us? I mean, I'm thinking that this evening I have to go out for a run. Can I can I get can I get my AI bot to go out and do that for me? I yes. yeah. that the case. <laughs> yeah, but they do have the EMS things, right? So you could simulate a run on your body with electronic pulses controlled by an AI system. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, uh, that's not to blow your mind or anything <laughs> but no go for a run go for a run <laughs> yeah go for a run certainly set up some sort of diary or calendar to make sure that you do go for all that yes, and give you a good reward when you get yeah. back right this has been awesome such a great conversation and what i've loved about it is that you are someone who is so at the right at the coalface of technology and you love it yes. right and you can see and explains so well how you combine technology with the other love of your life, which is yes. your family. And it's so clear to see. Uh, and you've shared so many great things about how you teach technology to do things, but also how you teach yourself to do things and the self-discipline that you have. And you've taught us so much about, you know, how to be self-disciplined and how to be as an executive whilst running a family. And there's no doubt we could have carried on talking for another hour, Noel. And I really hope that you come and do this with us again. Cause yeah, super fun. When yeah. I get my next new thing that I do, actually I do have a book I'm writing now. So when, when I publish the book, we'll have to talk again. And it's well, all of my little life hacks that I've learned over the years. <laughs> plug it. Is it ready to be plugged? Can you share with yeah, us? Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it's packed publishing and it's basically, um, I think it's called, uh, Oh, becoming successful with generative AI or, Oh no, empowering success with generative AI. So I'll uh, give you the, the, the reference to it so you can add it to the show notes, but it's not launched yet. It should hopefully go on preview in order to pre-order or whatever in about a week. So oh, pretty awesome. exciting. I've oh. never uh, been disciplined enough to write a book. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like, here we go. We're doing this. Wow. I mean, you've got so much spare time on your hands. I know, like, right? Like, I, I'm hoping it's going to be a bit meditative. That's that's what I'm telling myself. It's all about what you say to yourself. <laughs> I think that's, yeah, again, amazing. And we wish you every success with that book. I'm sure it's going to be brilliant. I can't wait to read it. 
probably listen to it. I'm a bit more of an audio book person. Yes, I'll yes. I, you can guarantee that I will be uh, recording it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you've got to read then, it now. Oh, and we also have the new LinkedIn course. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but we uh, launched a Microsoft uh, Career Essentials in Generative AI, and I yeah. am in the uh, Reasoning Engine course. So um, right. it's super exciting. My last course had 3.2 million learners. So we're on a, I think we've got 15,000 right now. So come on in, <laughs> take a look. <laughs> I mean, we we didn't even get into talking about the the Microsoft and the MVP and I know <laughs> so I, I, much I, stuff. But we'll yeah, see. I wanted to ask you some other things as well. So we we will definitely do this again because you're so much fun. And thank thanks so much indeed. Wish you every success in life, in work, with your book, with your family, and and everything. Thanks so much, Noel. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Search and Succeed podcast. Please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'll see you on the next one.